Good afternoon, everybody. Um, this is uh, ENT320, how a global healthcare company built a migration factory to quickly move hundreds of applications to AWS. My name is Patrick Stoneking. I'm an AWS ITT consultant. And really, my passion is focused on helping our customers through the entire migration process, from doing the business case and TCO up through identifying applications to move to the cloud and then executing the migration factory to get things into the cloud. Joining me is uh, Brian Hanlon, and he's the Director of uh, Cloud Operations for Cardinal Health. And uh, he's going to be talking a little bit about um, leveraging AWS's um, migration factory to be, you know, to, to support their migration effort for phase one at, at Cardinal Health. And then Joe Daly, he's the, uh, the manager of cost optimization at Cardinal Health, and his focus is uh, um, on cost optimization of the cloud environment and, and tuning and driving cost out of, that, out of that environment. So you're investing an hour on a beautiful afternoon in Las Vegas. So what can you expect from this session? So we're going to provide insights into kind of leading practices around the AWS migration, uh, migration factory process, um, really focusing on how you build the migration factory and how you leverage it to be able to migrate workloads at scale um, um, through the process. We're also going to talk a lot about understanding kind of how Cardinal Health built and leveraged their migration factory to successfully move its scale to the cloud. And then finally, Joe's going to talk a little bit about um, how Cardinal Health maximized cost optimization um, using tools uh, with respect to the architectural design and the operational monitoring of their, of their system. So let's get started. So if you've been any migration uh, uh, presentation so far at uh, reInvent, you've probably seen this before, but we're gonna go through it again in case you haven't. And it's really focused on AWS's uh, cloud stages of adoption. And now we're going to give you a little bit of insight into the leading practices in this area. Um, we'll go through the, through the stages, including project. The first stage is project. And that's really focused on um, building out a POC to support your, your initial migration effort to really understand, you know, what does it mean to migrate to the cloud and operate in the cloud? Um, typically, at that point, you're trying to kind of understand what that model looks like what it takes to, to migrate to the cloud, and what benefits you're going to get out of having applications in the cloud. It also allows you to really start to understand what that business benefit is, so that you can go back to your business leaders and be able to describe applications running in the cloud and start to differentiate and understand um, some of the savings aspects. The next stage of adoption is focused on foundation, and foundation is where you really start to build out um, your true capability of operating in the cloud. So you're starting to understand what your cloud center of excellence is going to look like, what kind of people are going to operate in that cloud center of excellence, um, what that structure looks like, what, what the training requirements look like, um, and building out the landing zone and the security models and so on. So really building that baseline foundational capability to allow you to migrate at scale um, at a later point. At that point, you're really going to start understanding you know, what, what does the cloud environment look like? What kind of tools do you need? What kind of training do you need to be able to operate that? And, and what that organizational structure will look like to be able to migrate to the cloud. That's also where you're starting to focus on identifying specific applications that may be part of your initial uh, mass migration work and uh, going through that process of being able to identify what those are uh, and prioritize and preparing for the overall migration work. Um, the next stage of adoption is on migration. So in the migration phase, you're really leveraging that initial backlog of, of applications you've identified for migration and building out the capability and executing against that capability um, to support mass migration. So that's where you're finalizing your landing zone. You're, you're understanding what the, uh, the migration factory would look like and building out those capabilities. Um, you're understanding kind of the tools that you're going to need to be able to migrate at scale um, and whether they're leveraging um, AWS uh, standard tools like server migration service and that kind of thing or if you need to um, leverage some of our partners tools. Um, Cardinal leverage Velostrata. I know that Brian's going to talk a little bit about them. So we've got a variety of partners that have tools that, that assist with that migration process. 
within the migration phase, you all, the stage, you also start to understand, um, you know, specifically what your sprint plan's going to look like and how you're going to be able to execute against that sprint plan. Understanding what that kind of migration organization looks like um, underneath, you know, the overall plan. How you're going to operate and migrate uh, as effectively as possible. And we'll talk a little bit more about what those structures look like a little bit later. Um, and then you typically move into reinvention once you've migrated uh, significant uh, workloads to the cloud. And reinvention is really, you know, looking at your operational cloud environment with the applications running today and understanding where you can um, refactor applications, replace applications to operate more effectively in the cloud. Um, and we see, you know, there's really two paths to that reinvention uh, stage. Uh, one of them is retired tech debt. So, you know, many of our customers will do lift and shift migration. So they'll literally do a server-to-server -server migration into the cloud. And when they do that, they're also accepting past bad practices, possibly, um, or technologies they may, may not necessarily want to continue to leverage because of licensing or technology or what have you. And really, during this reinvention phase, through the retire retiring of tech debt, um, they're they're going to go in and really take a look at does it make sense to continue to use this particular operating system or this particular database or this particular container service, especially as they go through and start to cost optimize that environment, and uh, they'll start to refactor the existing apps that are sitting in production to be able to fit with those new patterns that are more cost effective or better fit their business requirements. Um, and then we have other customers that you know quite quite often at the same time will be focused on innovation. So we have customers that will say, all new development's gonna be done on the cloud. And they do that for a variety of reasons. A, you know, within their data center, they might not have the ability to scale, they may not have the ability to go global, or they just recognize that the value of the cloud um, is such that they really don't wanna make any, any more investments making, uh, doing development work on-premise using their old tools and their old processes. So you see a variety of different um, different ways that, that companies get to that reinventions phase, and often they're running those two, innovation and retiring tech debt, they run them at the same time uh, because they see the value of accelerating through that process. Today, you know, Cardinal's story is really gonna be focused on migration, um, but uh, if there's any questions at the end, you wanna talk about the full life cycle and all the stages, we'd be happy to have that discussion as well. So how do we get started? So, AWS has a, has a migration framework um, that really helps drive our customers to successful migrations. And this framework is focused on four different aspects. Um, planning, <coughs> activation, execution, and optimization. And they somewhat go along with the stages of adoption. But the planning phase is really where you start to understand what it's gonna look like to move to the cloud. So you understand what the cost uh, implications are, whether it's your overall business case uh, for TCO, whether it's uh, really understanding what the cost to migrate looks like, and building out that business case so that you can get your key stakeholders uh, in agreement and alignment um, and get approval to be able to move forward with the migration work. Um, it's also at the, at the point where you start to really understand what's the portfolio of my applications, what do I have in there today, and what would make sense to be able to migrate to the cloud? And we're gonna talk a little bit about the different types of migration patterns, but this, at this point you wanna start gathering that data and really understanding what that overall application portfolio looks like. Um, one of the things that we've found is, and I think everyone would agree that you, you believe that you understand what your application portfolio looks like, but it's a fair amount of work to really get down into depth and really understand what that portfolio looks like. You wanna be able to gather that data so you can start making some choices around what makes sense from a proof of concept standpoint and what would make sense for an overall mass migration into the cloud. And then you also start um, understanding kind of what the high level plan is going to look like and you're going to understand what that uh, migration organization would look like and then your long term cloud center of excellence uh, organization would look like. That then feeds into the activate uh, phase and the activate phase is really your detailed planning. Once you have approval for the business case, now you need to really understand, take that application uh, portfolio list and really start working through that so that you understand you know, which applications fit which patterns and which patterns will go first to be migrated and understand 
what that backlog looks like and what the prioritization looks like. Activate is really focused on planning for the migration work. So get that backlog understood. Um, also understand you know, what, your, what your timeline may look like. Is this something you want to do a migration over the next two months, over the next six months or a year? And start planning what tools and capabilities are going to be required for you to be able to hit that timeline. Um, so start, start moving through that work. If you need to do a package selection on a migration tool, um, this is the time to do it. If you need uh, assistance with uh, um, really understanding the details around your application uh, metadata, this is the time to start gathering that data. And, and from a technical standpoint, you're really going to be focused now on building out your, your base foundations. What's the landing zone look like? What's the security design look like? Um, really getting that nailed down. Um, because that, that, as you start to execute your migration, you're going to be going into that landing zone and you want to make sure that it's well-designed, well-defined, and that, that it's ready to be able to accept workloads. And then you're going to do a pilot migration at this point within Activate. And really the pilot migration is you're going to identify five or ten applications that fit a variety of different patterns that are representative of kind of your overall backlog that you want to migrate. But this is the point that you really learn how to migrate. And you get some quick wins that you can then communicate that, um, that builds confidence, it validates your processes, it validates your tools, and you're able to get things up and running in the cloud, understand how they work, understand what kind of uh, resources are required to be able to manage it, and that kind of gets the ball rolling for what my mass migration will look like. Then next is execute, and this is when you really start to drive that factory to be able to um, deliver and migrate applications into the cloud at scale. And you know, the yeah, Cardinal, um, you know, they typically would start off with a small group, like maybe you're going to do five applications this week or this sprint. Um, and then the next sprint you're going to do 25 because you're going to leverage the learnings that you, that you picked up from the previous sprint. You're going to understand where you still may need tools to, to make it more efficient. You're going to understand where processes need to be tweaked a little bit or maybe the organizational structure needs to be tweaked a little bit to really make this thing scale up. Um, you don't want to be in a mode where you're, you know, you're doing five a week or five per sprint and then you stay. You want to be able to leverage um, those learnings and be able to drive speed um, through the factory, through a very repeatable, robust process um, to drive uh, speed and scalability to be able to migrate in a reasonable amount of time. And you'll see from the, <coughs> from the execute phase, it's an iterative process. <laughs> I mean, you're going to go through and do your application discovery. You're going to understand about the particular uh, applications within a sprint. You're going to design what that looks like in the cloud. You're going to build it, integrate it, validate it, cut it in. And then you're going to take those learnings and you're going to apply it to the next sprint. And every time, every time you should be building up uh, more momentum through the migration. And then finally, once you've got the workloads moving into the cloud, and you've, you've uh, cut them over and are using them, then you really want to start optimizing them. And this is some of what Joe's going to talk about. So really understand how these operate in the cloud. Did you make great des design choices um, as you were migrating applications in the cloud? And honestly, you learn through that process. You, you know, there may be instances when you undersize. There may be uh, instances where you're oversizing um, the instances. You really need to understand that and look at it as it's working in production leveraging tools and really taking that financial, <coughs> financial view of what it looks like, and then making adjustments as necessary to be as cost-effective as possible. So if you've, been, uh, if you've sat in any uh, migration presentations before, you've probably seen these, so I'll go through it fairly quickly. But we have six patterns of migration from, a, from an AWS standpoint that we see our customers leveraging as they go through this process. The first pattern is, you know, really understanding what we call rehosting, and that's really lifting and shifting. So you've got a server sitting there today, it's a virtualized server, literally picking that up, moving it into the cloud and setting it down. And same with on the database side as well. And this is typically, um, you know, it's the fastest process, you're not making any changes, you're not changing, you know, there might be minor, very, very minor tweaks, but for the most part, you're not changing those workloads as you're migrating them into the cloud. This is very focused on speed migration, getting those workloads into the cloud as quickly as possible. 
And you know, typically you can either automate it using migration tools, which we see a lot of customers doing, or if it's a small and, and relatively non-complex migration, um, we also see customers that do it manually through scripting and, and so on. Um, so there are kind of two different paths within that, that rehosting uh, pattern. The next one is replatforming, and it's a lot like rehosting, except for you may also be doing things like moving to a more, uh, more current operating system. Or you may be deciding, hey, you know what, I'm not going to be on my legacy database anymore. I want to leverage an AWS, legacy, or AWS uh, um, uh, database service instead. And this is when you would do that within replatforming. Um, and it leverages a lot of the same things that, <coughs> that uh, um, the rehosting pattern leverages, but it does allow you to make tweaks as, it moves, as you move through the process. The third one is repurchasing. Repurchasing is really, you know, you may be on a CR, an internal CRM system today, for example, and you decide, you know what, I'm going to go to the AWS marketplace and I'm going to buy a new, you know, a different CRM system. Or I've got a license for an application that's sitting today on-prem. I'm going to buy a new license off of marketplace and I'm going to migrate to that latest version of an application um, as, I'm, as I'm migrating to the cloud. And we see a lot of companies doing this. A lot of our customers are, are really leveraging this opportunity, especially if they, they may be under a, an expensive license today that they have an opportunity to cut cost in that area. They'll, they'll do the repurchasing uh, as they go through that process. Um, there's also refactoring. And refactoring, you know, we talked a little bit about some of the, uh, um, you know, those different stages of adoption. This is where you're really going in and you're changing the application to make it native to the cloud to leverage more of those AWS services, uh, maybe uh, either completely rewriting the application, which we see many customers do, or converting that to be able to more leverage um, AWS-specific services. And again, uh, you know, it's really converting those applications to be more cloud-native, to leverage less expensive uh, uh, services than maybe what it's built, or just plain upgrading from um, from uh, technologies that you used in the past that you don't want to carry forward. And one of the things you'll also find as you go through and you're doing your application portfolio work is you're really going to start to understand, are there certain applications that you just can't move to the cloud? And it may be because either the technology is, is um, you know, is quite old or it's a small application that only gets used very infrequently and it doesn't make sense to move it to the cloud, or it's something that you know long-term is going to go away and you're just going to let it kind of run out, um, that's typically when you would retain it and maybe keep it on-prem for a certain period of time. Um, we do see customers that do some of this, but it's actually surprising how few customers decide to retain things in a data center, especially if the model or the, uh, the business driver for going to the cloud is to close that, uh, to close that data center. And then finally, Retire. So, retiring applications, um, you know, this isn't something that's super specific to AWS other than the fact that as you've gone through your application portfolio to, to really understand what that backlog looks like and what can be moved to the cloud, you're going to identify applications that you either don't have an owner, they don't fit your current business process, they aren't important, aren't important to the business process, things that probably should have been killed a long time ago. And it's amazing, you know, typically customers are seeing 20% of their application portfolio is made up of applications that shouldn't be in the portfolio today anyways. Um, so part of this process is you'll see quite a bit of cleanup. Um, I, I recently worked at a customer that it was over 30% of their portfolio were things they just killed after they really started to dig in and understand. So um, from a migration factory standpoint, that's, that's what the point of this uh, talk is. And I'll go through this quickly because I really want you know, the Cardinal folks to be able to tell their story. Um, but from a migration factory standpoint, this is really building those scalable and repeatable processes that will ena uh, enable you to migrate quickly to the cloud. Um, whether it's portfolio assessment, so again, doing that, that discovery work around what's your applications look like, what's all the metadata around those, you know, what kind of instances, operating system, database, gathering all that kind of data, um, and being able to then define, it, define what the backlog is, define what the sprint plan looks like, and specifically what that mitigation will look like 
for that specific type of application pattern, and then be able to learn from that and repeat it as you go through your portfolio for those specific uh, application types. Then you move into migration, and you, you just really want it to operate like a factory. You'll come up with a sprint plan, you'll identify resources that are very focused on, <coughs> on the outcome of that specific sprint, and they're gonna take an input of a set of uh, workloads, they're gonna run through them, they're gonna do all the steps, and then they're gonna output them to production, and they're gonna go grab more work. The key thing is to make it a very repeatable and scalable process. If there's steps that you don't need, don't include them. If there's steps that you do need, as you get better at doing them, make sure that you incorporate those, new, those learnings into the process. Um, if there's opportunities to use tools, because typically when we see these migrations, one of the biggest issues is, is being able to get with your business users to find out the detail, or your application owners to find the detailed um, information on the application. If there's a way that you can use a tool, like an application discovery service, to be able to get that data um, get as much of that data as possible, leverage that. Because the key thing, again, is you want to identify opportunities to, to um, make it as most of the process as most efficient as possible, make it repeatable, and be able to execute it as quickly as possible. And then that moves into operations. And from a factory standpoint, you operate, you optimize, you operate, and, and you continue to learn and incorporate the learnings through that process. And that's what allows you to be able to scale up and quickly migrate to the cloud. So there's some key roles as part of the factory, right? Um, and kind of the over my, overall migration effort. Um, you know, we see typically our customers will build kind of three different key roles within uh, the migration team. Um, we typically see a business office, which is made up of an executive sponsor and maybe an overall program manager. Um, an office that program manager will be uh, involved because you have migration efforts, you may have new development efforts, you may have big data efforts, you may have a variety of different cloud-related efforts, and that program manager is going to be able to manage that overall, overall program. Um, then we typically see from a cloud operations standpoint, this is really your application owners and support teams that really understand those applications that you have today and understand all the details about them that, again, to help streamline that process of gathering the data, designing the future state, and then migrating it to the cloud. You also see, you know, typically an engineering office or an engineering group, and that's made up of your cloud architects. So really, that team is really understanding, you know, what that landing zone's gonna look like, what security needs to look like, and how that all rolls up to an operational capability. Um, so as things are moving into the cloud, they're able to operate, um, they're able to define what services are gonna be required for, uh, for uh, production operations, and start building and working that out with, uh, with the appropriate users. And then you have the migration factory, and again, focused on repeatable and scalable processes, and you typically have a portfolio lead with migration project managers underneath. Um, we typically see our customers um, using an agile method to, to, to migrate these into, uh, into the cloud. Um, a lot of customers work in more of a waterfall or hybrid model today. Um, so that's one of the things that kind of defining what that operating model looks like and, and how you're gonna manage the migration is uh, an important aspect of making that scalable as well. We also talk about things around um, factory, what we call migration factory tiger teams. And I'm not sure if you understand uh, kind of the concept from AWS on a tiger team, but a tiger team is, is a small team that's super focused on, <coughs> on an outcome. So within that team, and you'll see a variety of different roles, um, those aren't people, those are capabilities. So you've got a small team that, that owns an outcome, and they have all the capabilities to be able to own that outcome within that Tiger team. So if you're doing migration work, um, you may have you know, focus, people focused on migration, um, the actual physical migration. You may have people that are focused on um, gathering the application data. You may have someone who's focused on security, design, you have it. But they're focused for that particular sprint on one single outcome, and they, it's a highly collaborative team that works through you know, those issues, has all the skills to drive through that and, and get to that outcome. Um, part of the reason why this works very, very well is there's absolutely no siloing in this group. Nobody's creating a ticket and handing it over the wall. Everybody, every uh, issue that, can, that needs to be resolved as part of that outcome has a person or has a capability within that Tiger team. 
it goes much, much faster. And they're measured on the successful outcome of their scope of work. They're not measured on, I got a ticket done and I'm gonna throw it over the wall of the next person. So this makes it highly collaborative, makes everybody on the same page with what they own, and enables them to get things done much quicker. This is, a, this is absolutely a key part of making that migration factory highly scalable. And then we talked a little bit about tools. Um, and these are just a representative sample of some of the tools that are out there. But as you go through this process, and you're, again, trying to make the migration factory as effective as possible, um, don't hesitate to look at different tools. AWS uh, provides a variety of tools that can help. We have partners that do as well. Every one of them has dis different capabilities. And understanding what your requirements are and what it takes to be able to scale your factory, it's absolutely key to, to consider the tools moving forward. Um, just by personal experience working with customers, it's a lot more expensive and time consuming to use a person to do a task manually than to leverage a tool, especially as you're trying to migrate significantly a load. Um, so, you know, we have a partner ecosystem that's got a variety of tools. Highly recommend that you take a look at those and, uh, and understand those capabilities. All right, that's my piece. I'm going to hand this off to Brian. He's going to talk a little bit about Cardinal's journey. Thank you, Patrick. So before I get into our migration story, um, I'll share a little bit about what Cardinal Health is and, and what we are. Um, so we are a Fortune 20 company. Uh, we have about uh, 37,000 employees. Actually, this is slightly outdated. We made an acquisition recently that makes us even more um, across the globe. And that was all because of AWS and our project. Um, actually, I'm kidding. It had nothing to do with it whatsoever. <laughs> um, but we, we are a health services company. We provide anything clear from pharmaceutical distribution to medical devices that we manufacture ourselves. So a lot of information and a lot of data. But our focus for this migration project was really around two data centers that sit in the US. So we have one in Chicago and one in Columbus, Ohio. Um, so those were really, I bring that up because we have infrastructure outside of those two data centers, but the majority of our infrastructure sat within those two. So that was our, when I start talking about the, the migration process and the numbers that I'm talking about, it's really focused around those two data centers. So, uh, what, you know, why was Cardinal going to cloud? Um, we were a VMware shop. Uh, we still are a VMware shop, but why were we moving to cloud? Um, and, and there's a lot of reasons, right? There's cost savings opportunities. There's a lot of different reasons as why we thought financially it would make sense. But for us, I'm going to jump to the third one, is it was around speed and agility. Um, Cardinal continues to drive business through IT, and we were, we were having a trouble of really responding in a fashion that was uh, to the business's uh, pleasure. So we, we had to go faster, and we had to find a way to get there. And we found it within AWS that's really provided us an opportunity to, to do that. So I, I'm, it, the circle here is really focused on what I'm going to cover today on the migration process. Um, and I'll get into, we have a two-phase project that we kicked off as part of the cloud migration program. Phase one was really around migrating our non-production environments. So anything below stage. Um, and it encompassed about 1,300 servers. But the, the real goal of this was we, we wanted to, with phase one, our accomplishments were, can we move the systems out to the cloud? Can we do it for the cost that we think we can do it for? And will they work as part of the process? And can we develop a, a process to get that defined so that when we hit our production systems, we can kind of hit the ground running? So that was really the goal of phase one. Um, and I'll talk through this. So we have 85% of our non-production environment is what we were targeting for the migration. Um, like I mentioned, there was about 1,300 servers total. Uh, we, the reason we came up with 85%, we have a lot of I-series and, and uh, um, systems like that that were not what we call cloud-friendly, so we did not target those for the cloud migration. So 85% of that workload we wanted to migrate out into AWS. Um, we wanted to define a process and a repeatable process that we could follow for the migration process itself. So we wanted something that we could just follow, we could build a factory and follow that process along the line to migrate at large volumes. And then obviously develop a backlog, and, and I'll talk a little bit about this because this was a struggle that we had. So. Um, so when we got our business case approved for the funding to get this project moving, we, we were approved and the, and the version we got was, hey, go, go migrate. And we said, that's great, let's go do it. So we started migrating, but what we didn't realize is we hadn't built a backlog yet. So we didn't have a list of applications that we wanted to migrate. We didn't know how they worked or how they functioned. So we struggled a little bit trying to keep up with that. So one of the most important things that I think you have to do is you have to have the application discovery is absolutely critical. Um, and doing that up front so that you can build that backlog so that as you get this migration factory going and you actually start migrating at volume, that you actually can keep up and have actually applications to migrate as part of that, because that's where we struggled a little bit. 
And then lastly was to identify tools to do the migration process itself. So uh, as Patrick had mentioned earlier with uh, Velostrata is the tool that we chose for the migration um, software migration tool, which has been absolutely perfect for us. It worked very well. Um, it actually took a lot of concerns and risks that we thought was going to be a problem for us as part of the migration project. The tool worked very well. And then application discovery was the other one. We did not use an application discovery tool as part of phase one, um, but that is a lesson learned, as you'll see towards the end of the presentation. That is a lesson learned that we actually need a tool that can do it for us. Doing that manually or doing it with a, a team of five people is just probably not the best and most efficient way to do that. And then lastly is data migration, which, as you guys are all aware, uh, can be a challenge at times. Uh, I'm going to jump past this slide a little bit, but the purpose of this I brought it up is we, we altered and kind of iterated a little bit as we went through the migration process on where we wanted to put people. Our upfront up understanding was, hey, we need a large migration team that can migrate these servers to the cloud. We quickly realized that the migration process, thanks to Velostrata, uh, that process was pretty easy. The challenge that we had was around application discovery and understanding how those applications functioned and worked. So we kind of shifted a little bit and we put some of those people up front of that process to go work with application teams, understand how the applications work, um, and then we only needed a small team to actually do the migrations themselves. So it was a, a, a eye-opening experience about halfway through the migration that we identified. So where do we land um, as part of this migration? So we had 1,300 that were in scope. We migrated about 750, just slightly over that as part of the migration. Um, we transitioned about 200 to what we're calling greenfield or new builds, and those are really of, hey, the application needs a tech refresh, the application wants to rebuild, we just build them fresh in the cloud as part of that process. We took advantage of their tech refresh opportunity uh, and moved those into that. And then the third bullet point is probably something that we hadn't anticipated as part of the business case, which is we retired about 30% of our environment. When I say retired, they were VMs that we just deleted. They weren't no longer needed, whether they were a test, a sandbox environment, a dev environment, that at one point was in use, and then obviously somewhere along the line um, was no longer needed. So that was a huge success for us that we did not anticipate um, that really paid uh, dividends for us as part of the business case. Um, I initially thought we wouldn't see that as part of phase two when we start hitting our stage and production systems, but I think we're finding that that's probably gonna be a consistent number uh, as we continue on, as we continue <coughs> to optimize and find new ways that we can run applications in the cloud. We, uh, we completed phase one, which was those, those servers that I just mentioned in September, um, and we kicked off our phase two, and I'll get a little bit into what that is. Um, we kicked that off here just this past month. So what did we learn? As I mentioned earlier, application discovery, absolutely A1 critical. Um, if you can't get this right, you're gonna really struggle to get migrations completed. Um, in large organizations, as you can imagine, we have application team members that build an application and they move on to greener pastures, and then we go to the application team and they don't know how the product, their application works entirely. So we had to reverse engineer a lot of things along the way. Um, while that was painful, we documented it so that when we get to phase two and we move their stage and production systems, uh, we can be a little more efficient and effective. Um, secondly, large-scale server migrations. Without the tools, without Velostrata, um, without a discovery tool, when you start hitting larger volumes and more critical systems, uh, without those tools, it would be really difficult. You'd have to throw a lot of people at it, and quite honestly, it probably wouldn't be very efficient. And then complex application independencies. So this is um, you know, applications that may uh, interact with one another or interact with an on-prem solution versus something that's sitting in the cloud. This was probably a large concern of ours up front. I think we quickly realized that this is probably less of a concern. We weren't seeing latency between our data centers and, and AWS. We have a direct connect in place. The performance that we were seeing from a network perspective was, was pretty good. So it didn't really turn out to be a big problem for us. Uh, but it's definitely something to keep an eye on. And then lastly is testing. Um, we, we do a lot of performance testing because we have large volume that hit our e-commerce sites. So that's one area where we've spent a lot of time in making sure that we're defining a process and automation around testing so that as we move these systems out to the cloud, we can automate and test that application and or e-commerce solution. Um, we don't have it across the board for all of our applications, so that's a bit of a challenge that we're having to throw people at, but for the most part, it's been pretty successful throughout the project. So what, what's next in phase two? Uh, as I mentioned earlier, stage and production migrations, um, where you have about another 4,000 servers that we're targeting as part of phase two. Uh, we've already kicked it off this month. Uh, we, we are taking a little bit of a different approach. Um, we have found, and this is, we are a company that's grown by acquisition, so a lot of the servers that we have have old software on there that's probably no longer needed. 
Um, there's a lot of tools that are no longer needed in the cloud. So we have found that there are opportunities where you can build new that it's been very beneficial to do that. Uh, so we're trying to push application teams to say, hey, if you've got a tech refresh in your near future uh, and you want to refresh the application, let's build it fresh in the cloud and let's do it start from scratch. Um, otherwise, we're going to go ahead and migrate you as the Velostrata tool has been. It, really, the Velostrata tool has been a right-click, move, go, done. Um, so they, they've taken a lot of that heavy lifting um, off the plate for us, which has been pretty helpful. So next up is uh, cloud cost optimization. Thanks, Brian. Hi, everyone. Just a reminder, my name is Joe Daly. I'm the manager of the cloud cost optimization team at Cardinal Health. And with the time we have remaining, we give you a high-level view of the cost optimization system that we've put in place to make sure that we're locking in the savings of our cloud migration business case and protecting our investment. So the leading principle of our team, as in any cloud service, is to only pay for what you use. It's an incredibly simple statement. Everyone can understand it. It's easy to think about it and say, yes, I got this. But unfortunately, Amazon doesn't charge by your thoughts. They charge by your actions. So in our actions and our thoughts don't always align. So, and it's understandable because we're taking application owners who are used to building on-premise. They have large capital outlays, and they're building environments that need to last three to five years. And we're changing it over to a variable expense model where we're asking them to just focus on the current time and be ready to scale for the near future. It's a complete culture change for them. So we get through that culture change by forming a cost optimization team. Now, last year, I was here at reInvent, and I went to a number of cost optimization sessions, and I went to a session where a company had formed a team focused in on this, and it hit me like a lightning bolt. We need to do this. So I actually went down to uh, the Venetian food court right next to the slot machines, and I pretty much drew this slide on a napkin, took a picture of it, sent it to Brian, and said, we need to do this. And I got a response back to almost immediately. He said, go, start. So this is what our team does. I'm not going to read everything on it. Uh, but we're focusing on making sure we have the right sizing, the right price, making sure we're using elasticity, turning our servers on and off, and very importantly, measuring and reporting for all our users. So our process starts with step one, getting the size right. So of all the servers that Brian and his team migrated in the nonprofit environment, we tried to utilize the T2 family as much as possible. And this pie chart here shows the top most common instance types uh, that were migrated. Everything on that pie except the purple slice is in the T2 family. So 80% of our non-prod environment is on T2 family servers. So we're starting off with the right base price. Um, for the migration and for any projects building in the cloud, we stress build small. Failure is extremely cheap in the cloud. If a server application team says, no, no, I, my vendor says the requirements are this size server, we said, just, just try it. Try it on a small server. If you're not getting the performance, if it doesn't work, just reboot it. 15 minutes later, you'll have the server you need. It's just far cheaper, and the, invest, the return on investment on that is very high. Um, and it's not just on server size. Very important, EBS volumes. Because EBS volumes aren't charged by what you use. They're charged by how large you provision them. And we fall into a little trick um, where we were lifting and shifting a number of servers. So if they had a five terabyte disk drive on-prem, we gave them a five terabyte EBS volume in Amazon. And all of a sudden, our EBS expenses were going very high up. We weren't using them. There's tons of open space. And let me tell you, folks, it is a pain in the butt to right-size EBS volumes. So start with a small, minimal viable amount of EBS volume size you have. They scale. They scale as you need them. You don't need to reboot your server or anything. You just give yourself more storage space and you go. So that will save you a lot of money there. Also, use AWS Linux as your operating system as much as possible. One, it's the cheapest. Two, it changes your pricing model. If you're using Windows or SUSE or Red Hat, you're charged by the hour. If you're using AWS Linux, you're charged by the second. So if you turn your server off at 15 after the hour, you're not charged for the rest of 45 minutes. Also, it gives you a lot more flexibility with the reserved instances, which we'll talk about soon. But next, we're going to talk about automating your instance runtime, turning off your servers. 
So we use each EC2 scheduler and tag every non-prod server to shut off at night. We don't, we try not to automate turning them back on in the morning. We'd rather the application teams go in and actually turn them on when they need them. Um, so this chart, I love this chart. Let me talk you through this chart. At the very bottom, the horizontal axis is the hours in the day. So there's 24 little tick marks. And the vertical axis is how many servers are turned on. And each one of those lines represents a day of the week. So you can see the day starts off, not very many servers turned on, then up, oh, people are starting to come into work, they turn their servers on, and oh yeah, there we go, they're working, they're working, and then up, oh, automatic shut off, boop. Except, notice, there are two lines here. Audience participation time, what two days of the week are this? Shout it out. This is a smart crowd. <laughs> That's right, they're not working on the weekend, so their servers don't turn on. So it's just like the song says, everybody's working for the weekend, even your servers in the cloud. No Loverboy fans? What? So the added benefit of elasticity is you're minimizing, you're, you're making an efficient, efficient use of your usage hours. And the usage hours are very important for our next slide. Managing your reserved instance portfolio. I could go on for 60 minutes about reserved instances portfolio of all the cost optimization concepts. This is by far the most complicated. Please don't. I won't. <laughs> I want to, though. But good news is other people are doing that. So I recommend you go find a reserved instance session and listen in on those. They're very, it's eye-opening. Just because you get a reserved instance does not mean you stop doing step one and step two. You are always looking to right-size your environment. You're always making sure there's elasticity in your environment. What you're doing is creating a dynamic server footprint. It's going to change. You're going to have different server sizes. You're going to have different server families. And they're going to be on for a different amount of times. So we recommend buying convertible reserved instances. Our favorite brand is the three-year zero upfront uh, convertible reserved instances. And you need to monitor the usage and utilization of your reserved instance subscriptions each month. If there's a reserved instance subscription that's being underutilized, you need to exchange it for something you do need and you need to make monthly purchases to cover your, your new use, usage hour growth. So this chart shows the, how we've grown our RI portfolio. The dark blue shows our actual server cost each day, and the light blue shows what that cost would have been if we had 100% on-demand cost. You can see as we build up our RI portfolio, the savings get greater. This is multiple thousands of dollars of savings each day uh, based on managing your RI portfolio. Um, pro tip, going back to our AWS Linux system, operating system, utilize instance size flexibility. It's very much like Weight Watchers points, or for those of you who have no idea who, what those are like me, you have building blocks. So you buy the smallest size building block, and they will accumulate to cover the entire instance family. If you're buying a Windows server or a Linux or a SUSE server, you have to buy a very specific RI to cover that instance type. With instance size flexibility, you're just covering the usage hours of an instance family. It doesn't matter what size in that family that is. Um, so that is a very powerful, you get a lot more utilization out of your reserved instance, instances. And uh, like I said, this is very complicated. You can go very in depth on this. I recommend you go to an AWS site or a reInvent session talk to your AWS support person, or do your own research. I uh, like the CloudAbility blogs. Arzu SafePore is a thought leader on this, and she writes some very good articles, um, which you can educate yourself on. Step four, democratize the data. Give the data to the people. We have in implemented a chargeback model where each month we move the Amazon charges to the cost causers. So to be fair, we show them their environment. This is why you receive this charge. Um, and it's not very useful. People don't really respond to rows and columns of numbers, so you have to visualize the data. Uh, we're using CloudAbility as our dashboarding tool, and we've built dashboards for our solution owners. Actually, it's easy enough, they can build them themselves. And they're able to see each day their usage hours, what the cost is. If they change their behavior, what is the impact of the, of the cost to them? And all this visualization is uncovering a lot of aha moments. 
One of the most validating moments is when I heard a solution owner who's Brian moved his application to the cloud and he started looking at his dashboard and he said, I had no idea how expensive my application was. And then with that buy-in, we were able to right-size environment, turn his servers off when they weren't using them, and get the right RI coverage on there. And it's, that was a huge success story. And of course, tagging. None of this is possible if you do not have a strategic tagging policy. If you don't, if you're not tagging, you're doing it wrong. Go home, go to sleep in the morning, try harder. Um, it's incredibly vital that you tag your environment so you know what it is, who's it for, who to charge it to, all those things. So the results, I just want to show you the first four months of results. This chart here, the blue bars, show the daily usage hours we had um, when we started right here, and you can see it grows very steadily in, in, four, in four and a half months. The, our usage hours nearly doubled because of that guy moving all the servers into the cloud. However, we're optimizing the environment. So this line is showing the actual cost per day. And you can see this is us trying, it's going up and we're trying to get buy-in, we're trying to show people, and then all of a sudden it snaps in. The culture change is happening. And the cost actually drops to cheaper than it was when we we're starting. So we doubled our usage and lowered our cost per day. So it takes patience, persistence. This is, like I said, a culture shift and a change for, for all our users. Um, and when you're working with them, you need to change the scope of materiality. On-prem, the materiality threshold might be thousands or $10,000. But when you're in the cloud, nickels and dimes start to add up. So change your focus. And get finance department's buy-in. Let me tell you, finance departments get this immediately. They're going to like you. They're going to be your friend. They're going to go on to go to meetings with you and advocate for you and have really hard conversations on your behalf. So start this, get with your finance department, they're gonna love it. But like I said, it is a culture change. It takes time to change your perspective, but the results are there and it'll, it'll be a good thing. And as you can see, the culture change is happening. We're trying to, we're already getting focused to what's next. Once people are comfortable with turning off their servers, they're comfortable with resizing their servers, um, we're going to move towards serverless architectures using services instead of actual servers. So there's plenty of roadmap to cost optimization to come. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, real quick, just to add to that, I, I want to make sure that I'll be honest with you. It's mm -hmm. extremely important to have somebody who's not focused on the migrations, focused on the cost and, and the usage, because it's very hard and difficult as you're migrating systems and you're tweaking and you're tuning and you're getting applications working to also understand what that decision that you just made, what that means down the road, right? So. Um, and having Joe's team involved has been extremely beneficial and helpful. Um, we've caught, I can't tell you how many times we've caught something that would have cost us a significant amount of money. So having somebody that's looking at it from that lens that can kind of take a different perspective of it and be able to give that feedback to us has been very beneficial for us and actually made us uh, much more um, successful than we would have been without that. So um, it's extremely important. You can quickly lose control of understanding what those costs are if you're not paying attention to them daily. So thanks. There you go, buddy. Thanks a lot. <laughs> All right, so that's the end of the presentation. Um, you could complete your evaluations, but if you have questions, we're going to stay up here on stage. We've got some microphones I think are set up and alive. If you have any questions, we're, we're happy to answer anything that you, uh, you want to know more about. Thanks, so I had a quick question about as you went through this migration, how you managed change controls and how you integrated with, I don't know what your change management systems looked like before and after, but if you could talk a little bit about that, that'd be great. Yeah, we, we just didn't do them. Um, no, I'm kidding. Um, it, it was, it's different uh, it, to, the, to the point of culture change. Uh, we, we use ServiceNow is what we use. Um, we, we do complete change controls, but we are so, we built a, basically we build out our AWS, AWS environment it's very isolated, so the blast radius is very small. Um, and we are also dealing with non-production systems. So in, in our environments, the way that we do a change control is that wasn't as much of an issue. But to your point on phase two, um, definitely going to be a problem as we start touching production and non-production systems. So we'll, we'll complete change controls in phase two. In phase one, it was less of an issue because it was non-production and, and it wasn't critical workloads. Um, but definitely something we've been looking at. We, we have new systems that are built out there. The way we're handling those changes are 
it's all within our business segment that's actually submitting the change because the blast radius can only impact their application. So um, it's a little different in the cloud, and it's a lot easier to get changes done at a more rapid pace. Um, yeah, I had a costing question for you guys. So we're um, working on migrating a data center over into AWS right now. But what we're really concerned about is from a networking perspective, being mid-migration, some of those production environments being in AWS, while some still being on the legacy um, data center, or some not migrating at all. Have you guys gone through what that will look like for cost between com systems communicating from AWS back to the legacy data center, and what you know what that would entail? Are you referring to the data transfer costs between the two? Or? Yes. So there are some costs you are not able to tag mm -hmm. uh, with Amazon, and we call those shared costs. And we allocate those out as a percentage of your 20% of the bill, so you're going to get 20% of those shared costs. It's not 100% direct, mm -hmm. but it's pretty accurate and close enough. You get more of a blended rate that way. Um, but honestly, the data transfer costs, pretty immaterial. It's a lot of fear and uncertainty and doubt in the data transfer expenses. And uh, it, it, the question comes up every few weeks, and we say, here they are. And everyone's like, oh. Gotcha. Thank you. So it looked like a, a great process you guys set up, very well structured. Roughly what percentage of the, the appliable IT resources that you had at Cardinal was applied to this migration as opposed to other things? Uh, in terms of resource time and people on the project? Yeah. Actually, it was a very small. Um, I, I probably should have called that out. Our migration team was less than eight people. Um, so it was a very small group. We are still dealing with a culture change at Cardinal. Um, so we have a shared services organization that did a lot of that support today. We're, while we're in that shared services, we're a little bit different. Um, so we're still in dealing with a little bit of a culture of getting that culture change of, of using cloud. But it was, it was a small group. It was only eight people. Um, again, the tools are critical to that success. Otherwise, it would have taken us a, a larger army than that, for sure. Uh, so you went through the cost curve and the cost curve coming down. Uh, how would you compare it with uh, your budget uh, from a, a budgetary reduction standpoint, like moving to the cloud? Oh, yeah, it, it's, it's, that's a great question because it's complicated, right? Yeah. Um, what we're doing, like we said, we had a high capital environment in the past, and now we're moving to an expense challenge. So it's like renting, a, renting an apartment versus buying a home. Um, it's hard to do this half and half. You really have to have organizational commitment so this year, we're having a bubble year where depreciation's winding down from your capital expenditures. Um, but we are doing cloud first for all our projects. And the chart, Amazon charges, while we're tagging them to solution owners, they're being funded by the open depreciation budget from the capital we're no longer spending. So I'd like to uh, understand um, how much you talked about your application teams are actually doing the migrations. So are they migrating the infrastructure layer as well as the application layer? And you know, I'd like to understand if you're using any automation and what, what, how are you handling automated compliance and security? And so that's kind of a technical question. And then on the organizational side, you know, in, in your organizational structure and even in the model, I didn't see a, a separate security team. So I can understand what you're doing. Yeah, there. so the, the area that I didn't cover, I could have spent an hour talking about. We, we broke the, pro, the project. We have a project migration execution group that was focused on moving the infrastructure. Um, so if you think of a, if you're familiar with VMware, it's a vMotion, right? The way the, the Velostrata tool is very similar. So it was moving the application along with it. It was basically just vMotioning that server out to the cloud. Um, so I think that answers part of the question. The security question, being a healthcare company, we, we have HIPAA, right? We've got a lot of PHI, we've got things. So there was a lot of controls. We probably spent 50% of our time in the first two months working on security. Um, and that's to make sure that we had our systems under control, making sure we're de-identifying data where we may have some HIPAA data, um, things of that nature. But we spent a great deal of time on security. So we probably had two people dedicated to security for the first couple um, months, and then we, we still have them ongoing through the project. And, and honestly, they dotted line into our organization now um, so that we can make sure that we're kind of tracking securities and, and controls and making sure that we're not putting ourselves at risk. So um, great presentation. Just a quick question on business case. It sounded like there were a number of components that you guys sold initially, some infrastructure, 
savings, cost optimization, and yeah. it sounds like you had like 30% NAP rationalization benefit. Now that you've kind of been doing this for a while, can you talk a little bit, you know, level of magnitude, kind of how much each of those contributed to your business case? Uh, yeah, yeah, the, the, um, the retiring of servers at a 30% rate was much higher than we anticipated, um, which has really got our finance team to say go faster. Um, so that was that was probably a big one, but I think the, the largest is is really sizing it correctly and making sure that you're actually you're you're using systems that you're actually using and you need. If you don't need them, don't move them out there, right? And uh, to to Joe's point earlier around the culture change, it's people are starting to see how much their application. There's some applications we've already had people say, well, we need the application, but I could probably do without it. It doesn't really need to cost that much. So I think it's driving that behavior. Um, that's probably the biggest one. And then our non-production environments. Uh, there really wasn't a cost for having a server in our environment prior to the, to the cloud. It was just an unknown cost that nobody had to deal with. Um, now that they're seeing those costs directly and it's a monthly kind of TCO, total cost of ownership, there's a big change and shutting things off at night, et cetera, has, been a, has proven to probably be the biggest thing that we've seen. Thanks a lot. Yep. Um, what did your uh, application discovery process look like? Was it a mix of tools, interviews? What did that flow yeah, like? it was a lot of um, extracts out of VMware. Um, okay, is where we started, uh, and then there was a lot of information. We have a CMDB that we we have in place today that we're kind of works through our ServiceNow implementation. Yeah, um, I will tell you that it wasn't accurate. Uh, we thought it was, so it was another probably opportunity and improvement that we've seen as part of the program. Yep. Um, so we we used a lot of manual processes. Uh, it worked for the non-production environments, but as you get closer to production workloads, that's why we we all agreed that yeah, we're we're going to need a tool that does it for us. Um, you know, the concerns that we ran into, it, it, this sounds crazy, but you would tell some, you know, walk out with an application team and they'd say we have four databases and it turns out they have 14 databases. Yeah. Um, so things like that, which you wouldn't typically expect, but we did run into it. We're hoping a tool can kind of catch those for us up front versus after the fact. Did you end up getting one or? Uh, uh, we, we are down to two. We're, we're still through the evaluation process, but we're down to two and we'll make our selection probably this month. All the best. Good presentation. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Hi, uh, nice presentation, thank you. A question on security. Um, how did you handle security groups? Right, It's a way to protect instances to prevent, say, horizontal travel of network traffic you probably don't want in the data center. Um, how did you properly figure out the ports, the source destination, and that whole thing before you, know, you can really turn everything on? Yeah, that, that was probably the biggest challenge. It, it is still a bit of a challenge, to be honest with you, um, that we're still working through. So, um, you know, basically our network was pretty, I guess, in, in terms of dev, was very flat on-prem. So if you, had, if you were internally, as long as you weren't going to the external BMZ, you could get to anything you needed to. You could talk to whatever server you needed to talk to. Um, the way that we built uh, in AWS with security groups is you only talk to what you need to talk to. Um, so that, that's great, it gives you a better security posture, but it also creates a challenge in terms of managing that, right? It can be a little bit of a nightmare. So today, I will tell you, we're not where we want to be. We want to self-service uh, enable a lot of that for our application needs to be able to manage that themselves. Um, but today, it's my cloud operations team that's handling that. Um, but we, we probably got some opportunities there, to be honest with you. So as part of migration, how did you determine, you know, that an app X with five servers that make it up what server gets what security group settings before you declare the migration complete? We used it based on, so we have security groups already on-prem today for those application teams. We used those same ones in the cloud, um, recreated them, and again, but we isolated them to only communicate with the servers that they needed to communicate with. Got it, thank you. Yep. It's probably the uh, last question uh, for this evening. Um, we are also in the middle of the migration and uh, this Saturday we'll be doing the kind of 50% of the phase uh, one. So uh, my question is on the downtime, how, how, how do you guys manage the downtime? I mean, when you are migrating, you have to make sure the database is synced up, the data is synced up, all that, and did you want to do that in the Downtown, the downtime you allocated, or yeah. So Bo Estrada is going to owe me a beer. Um, so their their tool actually does the syncing and behind the scenes. Um, so basically, what it is the vMotion, and it basically replicates that data in the background. Um, so really, the only thing that's really a downtime when we're doing that is the actual restart of the server. Once you get, we call it a, it's a disconnect. You have to disconnect the old system, and basically what you're doing is you're redirecting it to the cloud now. So it went from on-prem to the cloud. 
and now you're pointing to the new box, and then you have to kind of restart and do your disconnect. Um, so really, the, all that data replication was all done in the behind the scenes. Um, so it, it, the Velostrata tool really kind of takes that hard, heavy lifting out and does that for you so you don't have to worry about it. Now, one thing you do have to keep a track on is you're looking at large databases. You do have to keep an eye on the network to make sure that as you're replicating that data, you're not creating another production issue for somebody else that's sitting in the, on those pipes, maybe. Because um, we did see that once or twice. But we worked through it. We worked around it. Um, wasn't a problem. <laughs> we got it figured out. But that, that's how it works. It, it basically replicates it behind the scenes. Cool. Thank you. Yep. Thank you. Right, Thank you very much. Lot.